0: Good morning, and welcome to A Drink to the Past, because I assume you don't watch this at midnight when we post it, or so, depending on, you know, how long the podcast goes.
1: Good, whenever your uh, period of time is. I just dropped a bunch of bottle caps all over my computer. That was awful silly. Yeah, maybe I should stop storing bottle caps above my computer.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyways, welcome to A Drink to the Past, the only podcast where I'm here because I am not on other podcasts, except for technically I am part of another podcast that we should record a second episode of, so Crow, if you're listening, let's record another episode there, shall we? One of these days? Hey, look, I can focus the camera. Isn't that neat? I should have probably done that before I, uh, you know, started recording, so...
1: I mean, to be fair, that's a similar lump full of professionalism that everybody expects from this show, so, That's you
0: know. true, yeah. I mean, like... Unfocused camera is probably the least of our worries, considering our theme song is two cans of beer opening.
1: Yeah. yeah. Or in this case, a can and a bottle. Yeah. Ooh, this is actually a pretty good beer. Yummy.
0: You got something different this time?
1: I do. I have a, a Peach Stand Rambler Uh hmm. from Odell Brewing Co. Neat. I which I is like a nice little you, seasonal. Hmm. Yeah. I, it's de- definitely a blonde and... I can definitely taste the the peachiness in it. Mm -hmm. Kind of opposite to my usual beers that I drink.
0: I'm dropping stuff here. (laughs) Uh, Today on Sean Drinks Something Stupid, I have Tin Cup Whiskey, which uh, comes with its own tin cup, which is pretty neat. It it, like screws on the bottle and everything. Oh, cool! Yeah, that's convenient. You'll never lose it, even when you're drunk and camping. Tin cup.
1: Oh, it's literally tin cup whiskey. Yes, tin cup whiskey. Comes with a tin
0: cup. Jessica Jones drank it in one of the episodes, so it's famous or something. Yeah, it's pretty good. They're based out of somewhere in Wyoming, if I remember right. But that could be completely wrong. Um, I don't know. Elevation 5,251. So they're 29 feet below us here in Denver. Cheers. Cheers. And I have to drink again because I dropped the cup earlier. (sighs) Ah. Alright. Now that we've got that into my system, welcome to A Drink to the Past. We're a podcast. I'm your host, Sean Michael Patrick Thompson, and this is my co-host.
1: Hi, I'm Chris, still angry about current events, Laudette. I'm I'm probably gonna be... Yeah, I'm probably still gonna be angry for a while. Maybe just a little while.
0: Okay. That's fair. Current events are stupid.
1: Current events are pretty stupid. I had, uh, like
0: five f- almost gigs this month, and, like, all of them have canceled but one. And I'm like, going to a gig might endanger me anyway, depending on the context of it. So, like, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of awkward. So, And then I had one that was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be... You know, all good, and then they canceled on the last minute, and I'm like, come on, man.
2: Such so. is the life of a
0: musician. But luckily, this I is... have other sources of income like this podcast. I'm kidding. We don't make money. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you
1: seen any money from the podcast? I sure haven't.
0: I, I've drank a lot more beer because of the podcast. Uh, but you know that what? I doesn't think... cost me money. <laughs> yep. I feel mm-hmm. like
1: that's uh, fair. Yeah.
0: So, last bit of tin cup here. Mm. Woo! Ooh, this is a rye one. This isn't. This is different than the regular rye one. Yeah, it's it's a rye whiskey. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know they made a rye, uh, but apparently this one is a rye version of it. I'm like, it tastes a bit different from the one I remember. Anyway, I feel like the regular one's a bit smoother. Uh, more, I think the regular one is a bourbony sort of whiskey but it's it's been a while since i had that either my brother let me have the last bit of the bottle after we went camping last week so it's a good camping whiskey and uh i mean i guess impressive feet literally just chugged about half this bottle in front of me and i was like scared for his life
1: (laughs) i uh i heard some stories about that camping trip (laughs) nice uh from from a few other people
0: yeah, <laughs> they're all true. I and mean, I, I guess
1: there's a, I guess there's bourbon rye.
0: Probably, but that, that, I guess that's you, a, you'd have to have a certain amount of rye and a certain amount of uh, corn because to be considered a bourbon, I think it has to be uh, yeah. a majority corn mash.
1: Yeah. I, uh I
0: But forget.
1: you, they have a, there are bourbons with twenty to thirty five percent rye them, apparently. So, yeah, fry Bourbon is a thing.
0: Neat. So I guess that's, uh, that's a thing. Anywho, uh, my beer of the week is Breckenridge Brewery's Summer Pills, uh, which is not too bad. I had a couple of these earlier today. A couple of four or five. I do pregaming. Yeah, not too bad. Nice, hot, summer day beer. Now it's warmed up. It's not quite as Refreshing as it was, a little hint of like banana or something in there. I don't know what all this is. It says bright Bohemian style pilsner. I don't know you, what you're the drinking difference a, is between a Bohemian style pilsner and an American pilsner or whatever.
1: But, you're drinking uh, a pilsner that isn't a. Uh... I, I guess when I think pilsner, I'm I'm used to the ruined form of pilsner that comes. Uh, that's the more tr- typical. Kind of American
0: beer. Hmm. Yeah. Or a lot of you know craft breweries will brew a pilsner specifically to have something light on tap for the people that are like, "I have a Coors." Yeah. I don't know what beer is. I just drink Coors. It's a shame. Yeah. I got this in my fancy ass uh, Lord of the Rings cup here. So it's got Frodo it's a, on it.
1: Look at that. It's a little Frodo, Fro Ooh. Frodo baggies.
0: always like to show off my fancy glassware. Gives me an excuse to buy more glassware, which I always need one of those because I have a wife. But, you know, that comes with other benefits. Anywho, let's get into the uh, podcast, shall we? Uh, What you been been playing there, Chris?
1: Uh, Let's see. I've been in the tabletop gaming sphere. I've still been playing a little bit of Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Uh where I happened to play the one law abiding character while everyone else went off and you know shot cops and visited an eldritch location and died horribly or was exposed to horrible things
3: isn't how it uh, goes. Yeah.
1: And then uh they stole my couch. So that was fun. Mhm. In terms of video games, I've been again, I've been dead by daylights can probably be assumed at this point i've been playing quite a bit of that played in a pyramid uh, head i actually yeah i have played a little pyramid head uh i don't quite get him yet <laughs> i think he seems like a fun character uh but i need to get more used to him i also i forgot to mention this last week but I also started playing a RPG called Hilix or Hilux? I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Huh. Uh, and it's got all clay motion graphics, and mm-hmm. the main character has basically a moon for a head. Mm-hmm. And when you attack, the attack animation is just you snapping your fingers. <laughs> uh, and the dialogue doesn't make any sense. So, you know... Uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I haven't... I, I, I've i only played a very little bit of that.
0: Right. Sounds like it could be somebody's jam or a cup of tea or what have you.
1: It certainly could. Uh,
0: yeah, I've been having see. an interesting time with uh, Smash Brothers. Uh, now that Min Min's out, I've been like looking for good ways to kind of practice Min Min. I don't know what it is... She's, like, way more addictive than any of the other DLC characters, so I've just been, like, coming back and wanting more noodle arms. Uh, so, went online, actually, more than I have in a long time in Smash Brothers because the online in Smash Brothers is not very good. Um, but, actually, I had several good matches where the lag wasn't terrible, and... And only a handful of, like, terrible lag matches. Uh, Because that's kind of what to expect in Smash. And it's it's weird because I'm like, I want to be, like, doing online so I'm not just, like, fighting CPUs. Because it feels more satisfactory and I feel like I gain more actual skill fighting against human players than I do against, you know, computer players. But at the same time, fighting computers doesn't have any lag. And that's... (laughs) really helpful um, so yeah uh, other than that I've been doing a lot of spirit battles too cuz I'm like just getting into the you know somewhat addictive nature and, and now I'm like going back and forth in the spirit battles of between Ike and Minmin Min, who are now apparently my two biggest mains I'm like I haven't even pl- touched Ganondorf since Minmin <laughs> Min came out I'm like sorry man <laughs> leaving you by the wayside He's gotta get
1: good with that Minmin. Min. Oh, I'm happy they added they added Minmin Min to the game. Yeah, she's too. a
0: really ridiculously fun, unique character, and uh, just kind of the way that she works is really kind of hilarious. Cause like she's a really good edge guarder cause she can guard the edge from a long way away from the edge. So like Ike doesn't edge guard like at all, cause you know he's all short range and no jumpiness. So, but, like, Min Min can, like, be, like, far enough away from the edge to where, no matter what kind of attack you have off the edge, you could not possibly hit her. And she'll hit you before you get to the ledge. (laughs) Because of the range on that dragon arm is just crazy. Um, So, lots of fun there. Um, I also put in Link's Awakening earlier today again, uh, which has been a little while since I've played uh, that game, the remake. Um, So I'm going through, I started uh, Hero Mode 3 Heart Run a while ago, so I'm uh, a little bit further into that. I beat the 4th and 5th dungeon earlier today, which took some doing on 3 hearts on Hero Mode, but uh, it's been fun.
1: I think my favorite dungeon in that game is probably the Face Shrine, so the one you're about to go into.
0: Yeah, the one I'm coming up on next is, uh, that was the one that gave me the most difficulty as a kid for some reason. I just went around and around that dungeon in circles for hours It also, hours It also has my, my way.
1: favorite <laughs> dungeon music in that game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The music in general in Link's Awakening is pretty good. Um, yeah. It was a little iffy on the Game Boy, but it almost had, like, this surreal quality to it because of how weird some of the tracks were, which kind of because everything is encapsulated within a dream kind of worked for it. So it's like, yeah, kind of give it a spoiler. Oh man.
1: Yeah. 25. Apologies
0: it a spoiler. to
1: anybody listening to a a podcast yeah. called drink to the past, <laughs> talking about a Zelda game that came out 25 years ago, but we're, yeah, we're going to yeah. casually discuss probably Zelda spoilers.
0: Right. <laughs> More than twenty-five. What was nineteen ninety-three? No, that'd be twenty-seven. Yeah. yeah, I think it was ninety-three. Uh, yeah, been out a while. If you haven't played it yet, go pick it up. It's available on three consoles. <laughs> um, and what else have I played? I played a little more clubhouse games with my kids. I've played most of the games in there now. I think. Um, and all of them are pretty solid little party games, the multiplayer ones, I'm like, so if you're looking for a good party game, uh, for Switch, then I'd absolutely recommend it, it's, it's pretty fun, and I've got a little bit more playing, uh, Last of Us 2, but not not any significantly further than I was last time because I went camping for three days in between again. So I didn't... So I've played, like, another hour or two hours or something of Last of Us 2. I haven't really accomplished much. Um, okay. but Still pretty much, like, really digging the uh, characters and stuff. And I, I had a conversation with somebody about this earlier today on Discord. And um, I think it's kind of interesting how like everybody praises the story of the first game and now everybody's kind of like shitting on the story of this game and i'm not really seeing a major difference which is uh in in the quality at least but i think it's weird that people are saying like the the big one of the big arguments against it is the whole story is driven by revenge Which is kind of true. There's a lot of revenge going on on various parties. So, you know, that's a thing. But then I was, like, looking at... I was thinking about the story of the first game. And really, you could sum up the story of the first game in two sentences. And you could do the same thing for The Last of Us 2 in two sentences, I think. and I think that's fair for... I don't think the story is... The big selling point of these games, in the way that people think they are, because these games are not heavy story games. These games are heavy character games. You're there to get invested in the character, see how the characters interact in the you know clusterfuck of a world they've been thrust into, and you know see how they get out of it. So and all those human moments in between, which I think are orchestrated beautifully mm-hmm. in both games. What
1: and. Keep in mind, i haven't played these games at all. Yeah. I am not invested in them in the slightest, but when I do listen to complaints, the complaint i've heard mm. isn't just that the game is about revenge it's about how the character's quest for revenge is like not really doesn't really make sense, and as a result, you don't end up caring about any of the characters. Mm. And if you don't have a story where – and uh, I, I'm expecting that you probably feel different. But if someone doesn't – if you don't care about the characters in a story, uh, whether that's uh, story-centric or character-centric, it's, you're not going to have much of a story.
0: Yeah, uh, what I would say to that is that uh, their motivations for doing the things they do are not what make them good characters. What makes them good characters is the other interactions that they have when they're on their own or with other characters or what they do you know uh as character you know it's 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 another thing that i feel like people are taking the overarching this is the story or this is what all the character does it's not what the character does it's how the character is in these little human moments that you see sprinkled throughout the story. And a lot of these are even optional. Like, I've found just by exploring places, like, looking for loot and stuff, I'm just like, oh, I need more supplies to build medkits. And I end up, like, finding this bonus cutscene where, uh, you know, these two characters have a really cool moment together, or something like that. And that's where this story shines. It's, uh... I don't think it has the same kind of presentation as a lot of other story. because uh, like one of the examples that the the person i was talking to was talking about is one of his favorite stories was um xenoblade chronicles 2 which has this very long complex you know slightly kerfuffled anime kind of story right and uh my thing there was like you're comparing apples and oranges right you're you're comparing this thing that's supposed to be a grand epic th- thing that happens over the course of 120 hours you're exploring you know multiple continents finding worldwide effects on what's going on in the politics and the you know the main villains dastardly plans and things like that and that's not what the last of us is about the last of us is about a more centralized look directly at these characters and their little interactions. You know, it's it's on a micro scale instead of a macro scale. And I feel like okay. people are looking it at at it at a macro scale and being like the general idea of the story is not good. And it's like I, I don't feel like you can say that unless I, you will say that about The Last of Us 1. That's I think that summed up
1: some of the criticism I've heard. But the mm. other criticism, where they say, "I don't like these characters," is a—it's not really a criticism so much as it is a—as uh, it is if you don't yeah, if someone's not, like don't I don't like, like these, these characters. characters,
0: that's fine. Then you know, everybody's going to like different characters for different reasons. That's fine. Yeah, but, you know, um, I feel but like I, people I, are being overly harsh on a game that so, they're looking at through the wrong lens.
1: I, I in a think a lot
0: of cases. Not all cases. Think, Some people aren't going to like it. That's fine. But I feel like I, people that are butthurt about it are like mostly yeah. just like I think, reading up like one specific article on what happens and making their entire opinion on that. I think what's actually
1: happening is people are playing the game. They're deciding they don't like it and when they go to criticize it they're not really able to draw on the actual reasons they dislike it, mm. so they come up with something that is like vaguely in the same direction that's as awesome. why they don't like it.
2: Mm. So
1: and they, they criticize it based on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it's like if if you have a gut reaction to something where you're just like I don't like it, you might you might have trouble digging out why you don't like something.
0: Right. It's
1: usually, that's typically and you can you, you can i guess people can be wrong about uh why they feel a way about something Mm-hmm. they can draw the wrong conclusion
0: yeah Anywho, who shall we get into the news and booze uh, sure cool so first piece of news and booze we got here is uh far cry 6 has been announced and it will feature Giancarlo carlo esposito who uh, you might remember from Breaking Bad, or was more recently in a smaller role, but seems like he's going to be very important in season two of The Mandalorian. So I'm so kind of excited to see him. Uh, the the trailer looked really badass for this game. Um, like I haven't played a Far Cry since whatever Far Cry game was on the Wii. But now Let me I'm see. Just what like, for crane? okay, I might get into this again. It's uh it looks like it's got a really interesting kind of story uh I think Giancarlo Esposito is like the bad guy who's like uh this president dude who has an iron grip on the people is what it seems like. So uh and this dude plays a villain marvelously. So I'm like, okay, I could get behind this. Uh and- I
1: I did have to look up who Giancarlo Esposito was before this podcast, but yeah, Gus Fring, yeah, he's a evil fried chicken dealer. Hmm. Los pollos hermanos, which is a sentence I never thought I would say.
0: <laughs> right, doesn't come up much. Yeah, so uh you played much Far Cry, Chris.
1: No, uh, Far Cry 3 was a game I looked at quite a while ago and thought I might be interested in, mm-hmm. but uh, never never took the plunge.
0: Yeah, the fact that I, I don't a lot think of those I ever played any of the story for Far Cry... I think Far Cry 3 was the one on the Wii, but I'm not 100% sure. But uh, mostly me and my brother played the uh, multiplayer and ran around... It's like it puts you on an island and you run around and shoot each other. So it was, it was fun. Let's that's all i remember (laughs) that was my far cry experience so it's probably far from a far cry fan but this one looks cool so i might check it out um next piece of news and booze. there was a google stadia event that nobody knew about because like I was thinking about this. I'm like, I get Google notifications on gaming news all the time. It's like, hey, here's a Smash Bros. rumor. Here's a whatever, you know, Xbox has discontinued the... Oh, that's another thing we could go over, is Xbox discontinued Uh, two of their uh Xbox models, probably in preparation for starting to produce Xbox Series X. But that's not the piece of news and boost. Anyways, um... Uh... Anyways, they they could have advertised this all over the place, and I never heard a thing about it until, like, after it had already happened. I saw somebody be like, oh, man, that Stadia event was crap. And I was like, there was a Stadia event? (laughs) So It it sounds like it was more or less a Nintendo Direct, but done by Google for Stadia. So the announcements included Super Bomberman R, Dead by Daylight, some 2K sports games, and Sekiro uh, are all coming to Stadia sometime within the next year. And, uh, also an indie-ish looking exclusive game, Outcasters. And now, here's the weird thing, is that they have one game that is exclusive. All the rest of these games are available on other consoles and or PC. Um, and Outcasters is, like, it looks like an indie game. This is not, like, it doesn't look like a bad game, but this is not a console seller. And this is the first Google Stadia exclusive game, is is what uh, I think I read on Polygon or something. And I'm like, they have one exclusive game now after they've been out for, like, nine months.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure I really understand their uh, business model. <laughs> I don't
0: understand their business model at all, uh, especially since they have... Because I thought some of the other games might have been, like uh exclusive but apparently this is the first one i'm like wait really this is it like you couldn't have got like like google has all the money right (laughs) google could have you know made a company produce a triple a looking game theoretically i think the
1: the other example of google has all the money we're seeing is uh Google can make a project like this come to fruition and live for way longer than any other company could. Yeah. (laughs) Keeping it on life support with those Google dollars.
0: You would think that they could figure out a way to make money off of it indefinitely if they would just dedicate the time to making the product not suck. Like, you know, Google the actual search engine, Google, where they originated, is still the best search engine. Yeah, Why can't they do that again with anything else that they make?
1: Uh, I don't know. Maybe there, there might be some further topic about how having money doesn't equal, uh what is it, You know, budget doesn't necessarily
0: good games and or doesn't make good business
1: decisions necessarily, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or you know, good creative decisions. Yeah, particularly that second one. Uh, But I, I don't know. Hard for me to speculate at their motives.
0: Right. So, Chris, are you getting Stadia? Uh, Didn't think so.
1: (laughs) I have a I have a PC. That runs fairly well. I think I'll continue to right, yeah. Because
0: you could buy games, games on Stadia and have to pay a monthly subscription, or you could buy games on Steam and not have to pay a monthly subscription. And and I mean, I guess you're not streaming them. You're, you know, playing them off yeah, of your computer. But that's if... way better at the moment.
1: Yeah, I have a. I have a computer that can handle performance-intensive games, but the games they're bringing on board aren't that
0: performance-intensive.
1: Even Dead by Daylight with Mm -hmm. its unoptimized uh, quality could be run by plenty of laptops.
0: Right. Like, I think the most performance-intensive game that I think they have is probably Doom Eternal. I could be wrong. I'd, I'd have to look at a full list again to be sure of that. but. Doom Eternal is a relatively... But but Doom Eternal can run on Switch, right? I mean, in theory. The, the yes. port hasn't come out yet, but...
1: And if you buy a Switch, you can also pick up such games as uh, Breath of the Wild.
0: Yeah, or Super Smash Bros., which... Super yeah. Smash Bros. has better online than fucking Stadia! How does Stadia have worse online than Smash Bros.? It doesn't make any fucking sense. I just realized that. I'm like, Smash Brothers is like notorious for bad online, and it's still a better experience than playing any game on Stadia.
1: Maybe this is just a uh, trial run for a Google Concept, and they'll uh, kill this, and then they'll come back Mm -hmm. with something that is actually, you know, functional in a business sense Right. in a couple of years' time.
0: Right, well, you know, there's another uh, streaming service that's coming out. Uh, Let's segue into that piece of news and booze, is Project xCloud will be launching later this year in September, I believe, and it will be rolled into Xbox Game Pass for no additional cost. So if you're an Xbox Games with Gold subscriber already uh, at the highest tier, you just get xCloud. You can just stream all of their games that they put on XCloud, which will include Halo Infinite when it comes out in this holiday season sometime. So that also comes with like a much larger library than Stadia. So I'm pretty sure like if there's a Stadia killer quote unquote, it's gonna be it's gonna be this, because this is like a much better deal because it's literally on Netflix but games and Xbox has more cool exclusives like Halo, which which it's weird to say because Xbox, I haven't got an Xbox One this generation because they have less good exclusives that are interesting to me than PlayStation or Nintendo, but they have more than Stadia (laughs) because they have Halo. Halo is bigger than every game on Stadia put together. (laughs) So... What do you think about that? Uh, would you be interested in looking into this streaming service? Because I'm kind of interested in it, because th- you don't even actually need a new Xbox to play it. You can stream stuff to your phone or PC. So I'm like, I might actually try this just on PC and see how it works.
1: Uh, Can't just be so I, I, If yeah, I was interested in playing Xbox games, mm-hmm. if I saw like an Xbox exclusive I really wanted, I might be interested in getting that hmm. and streaming it to my PC since that's where I do most of my gaming these days. Uh, however I when I see something like this it's like I just want to ha- I just want to own it. I don't
0: I, yeah.
1: I, I think it's I think it's more viable. I think it's
0: uh it's certainly a much better like a more consumer friendly strategy than uh what Stadia yeah. is doing cuz Stadia is like here you're paying for a subscription to use the games and then you have to purchase the license for the games which is essentially the same number of dollars as so like to play doom eternal you'd have to pay 60 bucks to quote-unquote own doom eternal even though you don't really own it because you can only access it as long as you're subscribed and you have to pay the 10 bucks a month or whatever it is so i guess literally just buy it on pc and play it forever
1: yeah I guess the question with Xcloud is uh, whether if they're increasing the prices of uh, xbox ga- Xbox game passes, And if they are increasing or and if they're not increasing the prices, what percentage of users they're expecting to pick this up for Xcloud alone?
0: Hmm. And yeah, that'll that, all, that they'll would have like a download option because that, I think would still be you know, I think having the download option would be a really good thing and would maybe make Stadia a more viable idea. Because if I could just download those games and play them, I think most of the games that I tried on Stadia would have been fine. But because I was stuck on streaming and the streaming quality is garbage, it just didn't fucking work.
1: Yeah, the quality of the product being bad will kill Stadia deader than anything else could.
0: Yeah. Anywho, uh, shall we go into our last piece of news and booze here? Yes. The LEGO NES has been revealed, which uh, includes a controller, a cartridge, that you can actually load into their console, and a TV. And the TV has a little crank on it, and you crank the crank, and Mario on the TV jumps on boombas and over stuff and it's like this little interactive like play set i'm just like dude this is such a cool thing as a nintendo collector i want it but i don't want to spend 230 dollars on something that my kids will smash to bits yeah i'm like i'm i'm like on the edge i'm like do i have a place up high enough that i could store it <laughs> display it that they can't touch it probably not my kids are clever. So, yeah. I probably won't get this, but man, I fucking want it. <laughs> it looks so cool. Did you see the video or anything on that there, Chris?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I, I did see the video on that. Mm. Oh, it, it does look pretty cool. Uh, it's just kind of neat little setup there. Mm. You big into uh no, uh, no, not so much. Oh, I was okay. about to say I'm not... Not much of a Lego guy, and this probably want to change my mind on it. But I I can definitely see the appeal.
0: Yeah, I'm like a Lego kid at heart that doesn't get the Lego stuff I want because the Lego stuff I want is, like, too fancy and display-worthy, and my children will smash it. So instead, I get little Lego sets, and I build them with my kids, and that's tons of fun. Uh, And then they smash those, and I don't care because they were, like, five bucks. Smart. Smart. (laughs) Yeah. So... I want it. It looks super cool. Oh my god, it's so cool. I want a Zelda one. (laughs) I'm hoping for Zelda Legos now that they've kind of put their toe in the water of Lego. I'm like, okay, is is Link coming out next? I want a giant... If they make a Hyrule Castle, I don't care. I'm fucking buying it. Uh, Hyrule Castle. I will build it and rebuild it it as many times as my children smash it. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's that. All right. Anywho, shall we get into our table topic or do you have anything else to say about Legos? Nope. Uh let's let's do this. Cool. So table topic. Um this uh I really sixty five. Whoops, I 20. yeah, I, I typed incorrectly, so I, I have to take a drink. Do I have any more I'm a little tiny here. <laughs> Yummy. Anyway. So, uh, table topic this week is, uh, traveling around a large world versus returning to the same town and adventuring out of there, um, cause I feel like I've done both playstyles to an extent, but I, I don't know what it is as a DM, just I kind of automatically design every campaign I do. To be like, you start in this town, and then you kind of just wander around. And I make like a world, kind of partly just because I like making worlds to explore. I like making sandbox campaigns. But at the same time, I've never really done a campaign where you start in a town, and then you adventure out of there, and you come back to town, and you trade stuff, and you go back out, and you have another quest, and then you come back to the same town. Uh, but I've played in a lot of those kind of campaigns, and I just had this epiphany the other day that I've never once in my life run a campaign like that. So, uh, yeah, I guess
1: maybe, maybe it's the influence of One Piece on you
0: or something <laughs> like that. Partially, yeah. And, uh, you know, all the. I love open world video games, too. Uh, we'll get to that later. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, but, yeah. Um, So I I kind of make all of my games on the basis that players will leave the first town that they are in for whatever adventure they're in, and then I'll give them a plot hook or two to probably go somewhere else. And I never, almost ever, even return to the starting town. Occasionally, like, depending on... You know, like, if it's uh, kind of an interconnected world with a lot of politics, then maybe I'll have them revisit locations and do other kind of things, Uh, but then I kind of try to change it up. Like, um, in my Pirates campaign, uh, one of the cities you went to was called Topalamask, which was like this gigantic city. It's like the biggest city in the world, and there's all sorts of people living there and trade going on, and there's a... Uh, magic college, which is kind of strange because, like, uh, nowhere in the world other than right there do people study magic very much. There's very little magic outside of that, like, city, basically. Um, unless you find, like, another mage or something. Um, which is... It's, it's like a medium magic level campaign in general. Um, but, yeah they would occasionally come back to this city and like the next time they came in then they'd all be wanted so they'd have to sneak around or they'd be you know uh have to escape once somebody found them out or different things like that so i always tried to keep it a little bit different even when you are returning to the same place um and i i think mostly i've been fairly successful in that uh which is good but i was kind of thinking about it, like, what if I just put them in that town so they've got literally everything at their disposal, and then, like, oh, you have this adventure over on the other continent. You go there, you do the adventure, and you come back. Or, uh, you know, you wander into the mainland, because this is a coastal town, um, and then you, may, you, you wander back, you know. Um, do you think there's any advantage that I might have gained there in some sort of design like that, as opposed to my you go all around the place, wherever the fuck you want.
1: I think there is an advantage to having one major city that your players spend most of their time around and adventure in and out of, Mm. and that's conservation of detail. Mm -hmm. And that when you spend a lot of time in a place and, uh, and it becomes more familiar to you, you have you as the DM have more time to pack it full of little details mm-hmm. about how that uh, town works. Uh, or, like, just little customs or, like, shops or whatever. And you can make it feel like its own kind of character. You can have, like... Inner, if if you spend a lot of time in one city, you can have, like, intercity politics in a, in a way that you couldn't if you're just going from place to place. Right.
0: And I kind you of can, try to put into, like, macro-scale politics, uh, but that micro-scale politics could be very interesting if you were doing it right, too. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of a cool little take on it. You you can have like little
1: business rivals or a bartender mm. that you have to avoid because you slept with his daughter and <laughs> she got pregnant right. or whatever.
0: Hold on, I'm going to use that as your next drawback, right? <laughs> <laughs> Chris in this All campaign right. has a drawback that like almost everywhere they go, he's made an enemy somehow. So in the last ca- uh, episode of our campaign, I literally made a a side story where he had peed in the king's Cheerios. <laughs>
1: Well, who's to say that the king didn't deserve it?
0: I don't know he was he was murdered shortly thereafter, so yeah, you know. and it
1: was not our fault surprisingly yeah, it was actively not our fault. We were actively trying to save his life yeah,
0: yeah. uh, but you didn't know it was him yeah <laughs> but uh uh-huh. yeah, um because one of the things that I do have, uh, some trouble with occasionally is like when I'm putting you guys into a town, I'm like going through the process of making another, you know, I try to make all my towns feel unique and interesting. And most of the time I feel like they do their job, but I'm not sure they're as unique and interesting as they could be, you know, because, uh, with this, you know, one town, you're, you can add layers and layers of detail every time they come back. Oh, there's a... Bob's Fish Mart open down the way. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, But, you know, in... uh, In a campaign like every one I've ever run, I'm literally having to make up a new semi-interesting town almost every session. You know, at least every adventure because you're like, we go to this town, and then we go to this town, and then we go to this town, and, you know, there's stuff in between. But you know, usually every adventure you go to a different town. And occasionally you backtrack over one of the towns you've already been in or something. Uh, But the way that I make campaigns, you don't usually, if you do backtrack through these places, most of the time you don't, like, do anything there other than, like, stay at the inn and have a beer.
1: And and I think it's fine for the type of campaign you're running where we're we're pirates and we have pretty good incentive to move from place to place Hmm. to not let the law catch up with us on top of other things uh but it lends itself to we can't really we don't really have an extended relationship with any part of the city
0: right
1: or any part of the town that we're visiting it's we go to a place and the mayor's a dick. Okay, well, he's only a dick here, so we don't have to care. Or we kill him and move on. Uh, it's not... And so if you wanted a more... Or the, if there's like a gang problem, you're not going to solve the gang problem in this town. It's just going to be a thing there. Or it's a small enough town that you can solve it and that's all the adventure you could possibly get out of this town. Uh, mm-hmm. which is fine for like globe trotting but mm-hmm. uh, that's it's just a kind of adventure that you wouldn't necessarily a long form kind mm-hmm. of adventure or plot that you couldn't get out of uh, out of the uh, globe trotting style of game
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah I was thinking that closest I've ever come to this uh, style where you have kind of a hub world that you' kind of uh, retreat back to is um, my Super Mobsters uh, where basically we made this, uh, well, I made this campaign. You were supposed to make a session of that, you bastard, and you never did. Anyway. Yeah, I started, well,
1: I had <laughs> made a session and then we decided to run something else and oh, okay. I never got picked
0: up again. Uh, okay, well, if you've still got the notes for it, we should do that sometime.
1: I should find the notes for that.
0: Uh, <laughs> Anywho, so, uh, yeah, I, I created this uh, basically as a playtesting system, uh, more or less as a one-shot, but kind of an extended one-shot that would playtest over a few levels. So it's not necessarily that you're returning to the same town, but it's kind of a, a little bit of a larger-scale adventure within the same town. So uh, what do you think about the efficacy of that, about having, like, You have an adventure in the town, and then that kind of leads to, oh, here's a larger, uh, you know, there's more stuff going on in the background, basically, is what ended up happening a lot of the time, because basically, you started, like, trying to track down these mobsters, um, in the campaign, and... Then you found that there was this whole conspiracy and that a lot of the mobsters had, like, corrupted the police. And then you had to sneak into the police station, which I think I, like, gave you the guys the plot hook. Okay, now you have to sneak into the police station to get some information on, like, who the real mob boss is or something. And uh, your method of doing that was two of you, like, just murdered somebody in broad daylight and got arrested. (laughs) Something like that. I, don't, I forget exactly the detail. You did something that, stupid that, and got arrested. Uh, that's about then, as subtle
1: as we typically are.
0: Right, yeah. And then the other two of you were like, okay, yeah, we'll go visit them. And you, so you, like, dressed up in these lawyer suits and come in and we're like the lawyers of these guys. Yeah, we, we would to come in. And the, the guards totally didn't believe you, so you just killed them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh but the the way that i had imagined this campaign to go was actually totally different cuz i imagined that you would like go into police HQ which happens to have, you know, the jail attached to it and you know you'd do some investigative work but i com- i made the police like i uh there was like some of them were corrupt and some of them were like good guy police And so, depending on who you asked what question, I made this whole cool detective campaign that you guys could have, like, role-played your way through. And if you asked the right guy the right question, then you would have got the answer you were looking for. And if you asked the wrong guy the right question, then he'd be like, you know, lead you into a trap somehow, uh, and, and do different things like that. Um... So I I made that that's another great example of just the players never do what you fucking expect them to. Um that's another rabbit hole we could dive down. Um Yeah. Why was I talking about this?
1: You were talking about that being like an overarching part of the thing that was happening in the city of that campaign.
0: Yeah. Um
1: because we were mostly in that one city. Yeah from what I remember. Yeah,
0: because pretty much the story of this campaign was basically, okay, you guys are in New York in the 30s and there's some mobsters and a police scandal. You know, uh, that's that's largely it. Uh, it was a little bit basic just to kind of, you know, mostly I was like making up guys with new powers to play test, basically in our superhero system. Um, and anyway... Uh, So what do you think about that style as, like... um, I guess you could insert that style technically into either one of these styles, or it could be its own thing as more or less a one-shot, though perhaps a one-shot that, like this one, takes place over a few levels.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the impact, the long-term consequences, or the idea of long-term consequences for a hard, violent approach would need to be more present.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and that's inherently harder to do if you can just skip town after blowing open the jail cells and releasing everybody.
0: Right, yeah, because, you know, depending on what you guys do for the next episode, and like, oh, hold on, what if we run into the cops while we're trying to save the world or whatever?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, So, having some form of, having, first, you gotta be like, as DM, you need to figure out an effective way of communicating consequences for going loud in that sort of situation where you say, hey, this could have long-term repercussions if you just go in there and kill cops for your characters. Mm -hmm. Like, in the next sessions, you would be hunted by cops permanently. Do you want to do, you can just say that outright. Uh, or you can uh, it also helps when characters are uh, fragile enough that fighting is a bad idea, which is l- less of the case in a lot of our games. Our, our characters tend to not be very uh, fragile. They tend to be yeah. pretty able to stand up, stand their own in a fight Yeah, for quite a while. I
0: feel like a large amount of the people in our group are power-gamey enough that that just kind of works no matter what they're doing and even yeah. if they're not like super power-gamed they are savvy enough to know their weaknesses and you know know tactically what the best course of action will probably be
1: yeah so being when co- when any fight can result in your death uh that tends to mean players will not always resort to violence uh-huh. as quickly, uh, which not not appropriate for all games. Sometimes you're like, well, well, we don't, uh, we we want death to be a rarer occurrence, but right, so, some form of long term consequence that makes thing that makes your life. Harder in a noticeable way that doesn't render the character unplayable. Right. Uh, So that would need to be paired. So that now we're we're into like a whole other topic, which is about making investigation seem like a more attractive path than getting into a fight. I'm like, if you're a first level wizard. And like D and D, or you're a first level anybody. A lot of the time, Mm. sometimes investigation can seem more attractive because you have one hit die, and so do all your opponents. Uh,
0: Yeah, but there's usually more opponents than you. So unless you're in a party, like, okay, hold on, how do I how do I wiggle my way out of this?
1: Yeah, but once you're like, hold on, guys, let me
0: put on my plot armor.
1: Yeah, once you're at fifth level or something. Suddenly, you're able to survive that much more, and you can make a lot more certain plans to mm-hmm. kill to like kill your way out of a situation.
0: Yeah. Uh. It's.
1: But I think I've I've probably gotten off track here since this was bit. about.
0: So yeah, um, uh, you've done a handful of. Uh, you have a hub ish town and you come back to it um, more than me, uh, do you find that that's a better style than a free roam?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say better. I wouldn't use the word better. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, it gives more chance for reusing characters and Uh, locations, and getting more in-depth kind of histories, like if the characters burn down a quarter of the city,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and that's the town, that that's like the city they live in, even if no one knows who did it, for the next 20 sessions, that quarter of the city has been burned down, and they're like doing construction work and rebuilding in it, and just Mm -hmm. having a little description where you say that yeah, that stuff's going on. That adds a lot and makes players feel like they had a lot of impact on the world. Mm hmm. Um, so. Whereas
0: in my characters' campaigns, they like burn down the city and then fucking leave.
1: Burn down the city, leave. And yeah. And so it. douchebag Ends up being like, we're not, we're not going back. There. Which is just matter.
0: hilarious because in my Pirates campaign, I think like literally three times you have burned something down and left. The pirates are. I think pirates two houses in a forest. Do. Well, a house, a pub in a forest. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they've certainly both got their advantages. Um, I don't think necessarily that I'm going to change my ways as a DM and how I present campaigns. Uh, yeah. Just because I like I- giving the players the freedom to just be like, okay, we don't want to, you know, worry about this town or. Like, I don't want to be wanted here, or I don't want to deal with the politics, I don't like that, the mayor, some bullshit like that, let's just leave.
1: And I I think, and here's a point where I'm going to disagree strongly with you, and I'm going to make a point that I think you might like. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, we're flipping this on its head, even negative consequences sometimes, are a good thing. They make the player feel like, oh shit, I caused all this? Does the, the police want me this badly?
0: <laughs> hmm That's uh, uh, a kind of a thing that can happen in my kind of campaigns sometimes, but it's... I bet it's a lot less common. Um, yeah. Because... the one example of when I can think that that specifically happened is my Ragnarok campaign, where... I kind of set up, basically, some cultists were going to try and incite Ragnarok, and then inadvertently, because of the politics going around, which I had given you all kind of like a, hey, here's a little bit of the politics, you could explore these if you want to, and nobody really did, Um, then I accidentally rolled on a table that um, you were wanted. So when you got back to town you were wanted, and uh, uh, my brother Dan was playing with us, and he just said, oh no, it was spies from that country over there. And they took that to heart, and they attacked that country, and he made Ragnarok happen instead of the cultists.
1: (laughs) So we caused Ragnarok, because he pointed them in the wrong direction. Yeah.
0: Cause he was just like trying to make up an excuse to get out of town and be like, okay, guys, we don't need to deal with this right now. Let's let's just skip town. So Chris isn't, you know, uh, you know, burned in, at the stake or something. And everybody was like, okay, you know, and <laughs> but it was so funny that I was like trying to point you guys to that town was like, there was like an alleged plan that they were going to attack. And then you came across a caravan that, was, like, their guys, but then you realized that it was, like, imposters somehow, and then Daniel blamed it on them anyway.
1: <laughs> we reason Yeah. So, uh... So it was just, you guys uh, have, like, a little
0: idea exactly why these cultists are doing exactly what they're doing.
1: <laughs> uh, I would point to Ragnarok campaign as kind of an example of both.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because mm-hmm. while we go from town to town we often revisit towns and mm-hmm. uh like when we go back to the main town that we came from uh that can it can be changed in our absence
0: yeah uh that's kind of what i try to do cuz whatever you guys are doing uh i kind of try to pay attention to what effect that has on the world and also once something is set in motion, I I kind of think, what end will it see? So I'm like, okay, in some cases, like, literally, the gods are going to war because in this campaign, basically, one god rules every country is kind of how their the system of government works. So uh, now there's, like, uh, one god has, like, claimed a few other countries... Uh, starting with the original one that you told them to attack, which is, uh, the country of the God of Wind. And the God of Wind is a gigantic bird that just basically doesn't give a fuck about humans or, uh, mortals or whatever they're doing. And just kind they're of, like, flies around doing wind god stuff. He's, he's a giant... They're like, the dragon. bird
1: in the sky told us to attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I doubt
0: that yeah basically when people ask him for counsel he says i don't care why should you you know <laughs> it's kind of his character um you know the one time he really even saved his people was literally that like a terask had attacked the village and he was like okay fine i'll come kill the tarask so he came and he ate the terask. so That's like the thing that he's done and the rest of the time he's just flying around like, I'm making the wind work. You're fucking welcome, you dicks.
2: Huh?
1: Let's see. Do I have anything? Yeah, okay. So, for my latest game, All People Carry Out Light had a lot has both villages that the players came from and spent a lot of time in and uh, also a lot of road travel. Mm. But the idea is that those things, things could change as you were on the road for weeks or months. Right. And go back and forth between places.
0: Is there anything else we want to specifically say on this topic? Because I feel like we've kind of hit a lot of the major points. I guess we could have like a closing. Unless there's anything Uh, else you want to say specifically.
1: Nothing I want to say specifically? Unless uh, Nick decides to hop on randomly and give his opinion on this topic.
0: Nick, are you here? That would be random. So yeah, I guess, uh, basically, I feel like both of them are very viable. Whoa. That's not... Huh. Hey, Nick. Hi, Nick. But what topic?
1: So, uh, oh, the topic is single city that players continually return to and kind of live out of, uh, versus more of a globetrotting campaign where people rarely, if ever, see the same location. And just go from location to location, having adventures, uh, which is the preferred advan- uh, preferred approach, and which is pros and cons.
3: That is a huge topic.
1: Yeah, and we went on several side tracks about that already. Mm-hmm.
3: Not sure which side tracks you went down, but I guess my two cents is those really cater to two separate kinds of games. I think you might be best served if you actually bundle both of those together in a longer campaign arc like there's like a main hub that people may return to and invest their like fucks to give in but then you can also have other you know strings of pearls per se cities to go to and explore but it's like how much are you as a dm willing to prepare to make it good
1: and i think that yeah that's kinda, a big topic that's kind of like what Sean and I just talked about with uh, the kind of both thing <laughs> that we were talking about earlier. So yeah, yeah,
0: they're both. Very I would go. Viable. I would
3: personally lean towards hub.
0: Yeah,
1: hub of adventure.
0: Yeah, and it's funny that you lean towards hub, and I picked this topic because I've literally never done that. Really? Yeah, not once as a DM. Every DM campaign I come up with, I just. I make a starting town and then you go to the next area and you do something else and it eventually puts you on a track to somewhere else again. Uh, And you just keep wandering around and every now and then, you know, some of my campaigns have wandered back upon the trail, like, okay, now it would be appropriate to reintroduce this town or whatever. Uh, right. But I've never done a campaign where you had a hub town that you returned to.
3: I typically prefer hosting sandbox games and that's just a lot easier to do with a hub town. I know I used to do a more narrative style and it was definitely you go from point A to B to C and so on and so forth, but there is a lot less like mm-hmm. things they could do. My current setup's like, here's the hub and then here's all these activities you can do and also you care about the hub.
0: Right. Because I, I make sandbox campaigns too, but I don't use a hub. I use kind of like once you've done whatever quest you were on I give you a handful of different options or if there's like a specific thing that I'm like okay this is the thing that makes most sense to do then that's the plot hook I'll give or whatever uh and then you'll wander into you know whatever towns are in between and I'll usually make up an adventure for every town or in between while you're adventuring or something like that. So yeah, it's-
3: that's a way you're good. It's a good way to do it yeah. if you're going to go that route. Mm-hmm. I just I just find it hard with preparation time and having a whole bunch of cities because you know you look at a map, right? Mm. You, you make out your little world. You dot all your cities. And you're like, this is the capital of this nation. This is the capital of this nation. This is these little in between places. And this is a special fortress. And this is this weird temple place full of temples. Yada yada yada. It's like, oh god, how much of that do you want to prepare? I like my sand to be deep so that people can like really dig into an area and Mm. my preparation time is devoted to that
1: and this is the conservation of detail thing i was talking about Mm. earlier where boom uh, where it's you can prepare you can prepare a single city and like the surrounding locales you can prepare a string of cities you could even prepare like a whole galactic sector but you're going to be spending about the same amount of preparation time on each one which means detail is necessarily spread thinner the bigger you go.
0: Yeah. So kind of the way I do it is that I don't really I I make a fair sized world and I name all the cities and I think of maybe a handful of them as important quote unquote cities. Uh that's like okay this will be the capital of this town this will be you know a big trade center or something and something like that and that's all the detail i do at first and then all of my detail like the meat i detail as we're playing like okay you, you know once we're actually going to this city then i will make a session around it i will make you know npcs that are in the bar i'll make you know uh there's a couple of quest hooks here there's a dungeon over here or something and so i i really do all my prep work session by session by session uh and that's kind of the way that i just do my prep work i don't do all of the prep work at once and say this is the campaign uh because i don't i feel like doing that makes it so that i'm writing the story and I don't want to write the story. I want to present a world in which the characters can make their own story.
3: Amen to that. But yeah, I think that's what you just said is the only way you can do, like, string of locations. It's like, alright, where are you gonna go next? Oh, you're, why are you, oh, you're going there? Alright. Yeah. Um, end of Thanks. session. See you next week. I got the some stuff beats. to prepare.
1: Right. The um, anal beats method of uh, DM preparation. <laughs>
3: I said I prob- string of pearls, damn it! <laughs> <I>
1: was referring <laughs> I said to what else I said. entirely.
0: <laughs> you said what you said.
3: Did he say anal beads before Jeff I got here? Jeff Bridges,
0: that's a guy in your profile picture. I'm trying <laughs> to remember his fucking name. I'm like, who is that guy? It's it's the guy, but it's.
1: Uh, it's- uh, what was his name? Rooster Cogburn. Yeah.
0: Because it was John Wayne first. Yeah, and and then it was, Jeff. It Bridges was Jeff Bridges,
1: later. and the was that a remake or a sequel? Remake. Okay.
0: Pretty sure. I saw both of them at some point, and then I forgot most of the details of both of them.
1: Yeah. Oh, you know,
0: that's how that goes. The Big Lebowski was also good. That had Jeff Bridges.
1: Yeah, I like that movie.
0: Alright. Is that uh, all we have for this topic? I
1: I think that's all I had to say.
0: Alright, so both things are good. Uh, Do whichever works for you. Thanks for hopping on, Nick. Yeah! Would you like to stick around for our video game topic?
3: I'll stick around until I'm bored.
0: Alright, so our video game topic for today is uh, open world versus linear world design in video games. So it's kind of adjacent to what we're talking about here uh because a lot of uh linear games kind of go along this way of like let's have a hub world that you kind of return to um which i feel like started almost in ocarina of time where you had or, or maybe even mario 64 you could argue uh but then ocarina of time really made it feel more like a world and, and, like, uh, the hub portion was obviously Hyrule Field, whereas Mario 64 was, like, your hub is, like, the the castle. And then the paintings are the different ways that you can go to teleport to other worlds. Um, and th- those are differing... Th- there's a lot of things I could say about that, but... Um, so I guess we could almost use hub world as its its own kind of thing because some some linear games use a hub and some don't.
1: Yeah. Uh. So in terms of open world games, or game or games with a hub world that have like a lot of locations, uh, you have to prepare. Unlike D and D, unlike tabletop RPGs, you have to. Prepare the content for anywhere the player character might be able to go,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which seems obvious, but presents a lot of difficulties. It's however big you make the world, you have to fill all of that in, and you can't improvise on any of it because mm-hmm. that's just not a thing. With video games, right? Uh, so, open worlds, uh aren't necessarily the best choice for every style
0: of game. Yeah.
1: Which again, I, I feel like I'm stating a bunch of obvious things. <laughs> uh linear linear games are perfectly fine. So here's a question then.
3: If we look at Dark Souls, would you consider it a linear game or an open world game?
1: I would consider Dark Souls not quite a linear game because of all of the interconnectedness of the areas and how it was filled in, Uh, but it does tend to push you along a path, particularly early on, because of how fucking scary the enemies are in other areas.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of like Metroid or something, where it's like, you have a quote-unquote correct way to go, but you have many paths to get there, right? That's sort of how Dark Souls works and sort of how um, Metroid works. Um, And a game that I would compare both of those to is Skyrim, which everybody will basically tell you is an open-world game, but there's a correct place to go and a bunch of incorrect places to go. And going to the incorrect places will maybe give you a side quest sometimes, but 99% of the time in Skyrim... Like going off the beaten path is pointless as shit. so what? I would call that a linear open world. It's like it has a linea- it, it has an open world, but the actual story structure and the way that you go through this world is linear:
1: As opposed to say, Breath of the Wild, where you could literally run to the final boss after getting finished with the plateau. Yeah, I did that once. And, uh, get your ass kicked by the light cannons. Yeah, I
0: did that, too. <laughs> or you could
1: go throughout the game and do the plot events, basically, in any order. Yeah. So...
0: And that's one of m- the things maybe. that I think Breath of the Wild really excels at, specifically, is the world design. Uh, cause you have set points to go, like you would in any um... open world game. Traditional open world. Yeah. But the thing about Breath of the Wild is that there's not a correct path to take, right? Because even if you had a specific order, if you had to do every, you know, one dungeon and then the other dungeon and then the other dungeon and then the other dungeon, you would still have almost an infinite number of paths to go between wherever you were and that other dungeon. And there is, you know side quests in between there's plenty of world to explore in between for collectibles and stuff and so i feel like the world design there really lends itself more to the open world kind of idea like even in the starting area there's just a ton of stuff to do right and most games don't have that most games are like okay you are here and now the next place you have to go is here and usually there's a trail there, sometimes there's not, and sometimes you can go off the beaten trail, but it never helps you. Which is one of my big complaints about Skyrim. Because, uh, not not that I d- dislike Skyrim by any means, but I, I do knock on it a lot because I wanted another Morrowind and I didn't get it. And I'm a spoiled uh- dick. Don't want to go off on that. a
3: tangent, but I think I disagree about your analysis of Skyrim there. Okay. Yeah, I found lots of joy in going off the beaten path in that game.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm with Nick on this one, but I had a lot of fun not pursuing... The, the story is ri- The main story is written in a linear way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But in terms of... Uh, yeah, the main story is bad. Uh... <laughs> But in terms of all the other things you can do or quests you can pursue, it really is just a... It's almost kind of relaxing in a Minecraft sort of way Mm -hmm. in terms of just going off and doing something else and being left up to your own devices, going to random dungeons or getting in fights with bears or whatever. I felt like
0: to an extent that kind of worked okay, but I feel like coming from Morrowind, it was like they already did themselves 8000 times better because in Morrowind literally everything you did was that way you know you would it it really helped also that you never had quest markers or anything which is you know weird because I generally am okay with quest markers as a thing in games but like one of the coolest things about Morrowind was looking through your journal and being like okay how did that guy describe it? It's east out of town and then you turn left at this mountain or something when the trees end. And it's like stuff like that that really makes you like looking for stuff. It feels like more of an adventure. Plus the fact that Morrowind was 8 million times bigger and had 8 million times more stuff in it. There's just like dungeons everywhere. And some of them have a quest associated with them. Some of them I'm pretty sure are just like ruins for no reason as far as the game go. You know, it's like the reason is that they wanted to put ruins there. There's probably maybe a lore reason love or pointless something. Ruins.
1: As a ga- as a gameplay thing, I love pointless ruins. Right? Yeah, as a, it's like, like a world building thing, eh, they're they don't make they don't really add that it depends, much especially like
0: some of them like would have some they wouldn't be pointless. They might be I, I call them pointless. I mean, like, you don't have a quest to go there or any major treasure yeah, yeah. to find. But some I of have them are point, like, but... you'll go in there and then you might discover, like, uh, oh, there was, a, was, there was some the cultists, a bandit camp here. There is, a, uh, you know, you might just have a little inkling into the lore of the world. There's, you know, this is a, built by the Dwemer ancient civilizations ago. Yeah. Stuff like that. And Skyrim is almost entirely devoid of that. Every dungeon has a quest and.
3: And locks you out if you don't have it half the time. A
0: lot of the time, yeah. And it's just like, it feels so much less interesting to explore to me
1: stumble into the middle of something, accidentally start a quest where like somebody's daughter's been kidnapped. Yeah.
0: It wasn't They'll be like, quite oh, I'm as going to kill her.
1: A... I know you've been hired by this person. Like, I'm just here in this dungeon and I don't know even know who that is. I'm gonna shoot you in the face. Right. I mean I
3: definitely had that same experience a lot in Skyrim though, like especially like end ish game when most of the quests or whatever were done, I'm just look at the map and I'm like alright, what hasn't been filled in yeah. and I'd go there and just bumble around and keep finding actual dungeons with just That feel pointless, but, you know, like the northern frosty coast, like exploring that whole thing. There's all sorts of weird shit up there. Mm. Like, uh, maybe not weird, but
0: my problem with that is that that's exactly what I did in Morrowind. And after like 150 hours, I still had maybe a third of the map filled in. And after like 50 hours, mostly doing the main story while occasionally exploring other stuff, I had almost the whole map filled in in Skyrim. It's just, it felt so. Smaller. Yeah. And it I felt like it wasn't just smaller. None of the f- stuff felt as satisfying to explore. And I, I guess that's maybe a oh, personal thing in that. That's, that's maybe,
3: maybe after 150 hours of exploring Morrowind, like, <laughs> you're going to get some burnout on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: It's happened to me too many times.
0: But the combat was good. <laughs> combat was a lot better than Morrowind. <laughs> Morrowind combat was not very good.
3: I actually, the one time I played Morrowind, I started up like a Fisty Cuffs Dark Elf, Mm. and I did not know what I was doing or how to play that game, and it was painful. Mm
1: -hmm. That's that's why I want Skywind to come out at some point in our lifetime, Mm -hmm. so that I can get the experience of playing Morrowind, but with Skyrim combat.
0: I will pay a lot of money for that.
1: It's a fan project, so I, I don't think they're legally allowed to accept money for right. that.
0: Basically, yeah, because I, I heard that, that basically Bethesda was like, we're not going to sue you or shut you down, but you have to make all your own assets. Oh. So hopefully that'll eventually happen. I'm like, dude, why doesn't Bethesda just, like, give them a buttload of money to make this happen? Because they know fucking fans want it, right? Fans will easily really pay more the than enhanced edition or whatever. For this. I feel like. I feel like. I don't know. I would pay more than 60 bucks for that. For HD fucking Morrowind. Like fucking. HD? Yeah. HD Morrowind? Skyrim Combat? Yeah. And no other changes. Yeah. That's all they but have the to
3: But the combat's do. not that good. Cur- Never mind.
0: <laughs> I don't know, the Skyrim I mean, combat to, I com- thought was pretty fun um, compared to Morrowind. Compa- really, really
1: compared to Morrowind combat.
3: I mean, Skyrim combat was like inventory juggling and like stat comparisons.
1: As opposed to percentage based trying to hit a thing and
0: missing it Oh, I mean, yeah, if we're comparing to Morrowind, the same it's an improvement. Yeah, inventory that's, that's... juggling only worse because you could carry a lot more stuff On well, in the in higher Skyward.
3: difficulties it's like all right what potion do i have that helps me with this situation <laughs> <laughs> or what is my daily ability for my race ooh that i can use that, that.
0: was one of the nice <laughs> things about morrowind is you could just carry like as many potions as you wanted cuz they were very not as many but they were they weren't very heavy so you could carry a lot of them so i'd like as my like berserker guy i would like carry a buttload of sujama and just like, oh, I came into an uh, enemy, I don't feel like fighting very much, or, or, or a big boss or something. I'm like, okay, and I, uh, it was funny, I actually went into Vivek, uh, who is like, uh, there's a city named after him. He's like this uh, sub-deity guy, that's like a very important story-centric character. And I really just hated the layout of his city, and that was the only reason I decided to kill him. But I I go into his Did it let you kill Vivek? I did. (laughs) Uh, I it was funny because uh, my brother, as a challenge, decided after he was done with the game that he was going to try and do this. And he came up with this giant strategy. And he's like, uh, you know, throwing fireballs and dodging his attacks and doing all sorts of stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, I I fought him for like 20 minutes before I finally took him down. I'm like, okay, I bet I could beat that. And I, I go into Vivek's room. I go right up to him. I drink 47 bottles of sujama, and I fucking hit him with my sword and he died. One fucking shot. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah.
3: Sounds like what John did in my game with some mushrooms. Oh, you mean, a mountain.
1: you mean stairs is ridiculous power level?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's been nerfed now. Okay, context. One of the players in my game was doing something conniving. My nose. he was collecting buffs that doubled damage hmm. I have now learned that multiplicative things should not be put into games but he combines I think two or three things that double your damage as well as just straight damage boosts and he whomped on something for like 450 damage in one round for context a max level fighter has around 70 hit points <laughs> So he pretty much just golfed a gigantic Earth Elemental out of town like it was nothing. Nice.
1: (laughs) That's why we put put buffs on
0: him. (laughs) Back to the topic a little bit. Um, So do you guys have any particular games that you like with a linear world design? uh, And what do you like about those games?
3: Let me open up
1: my uh, game box here.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I think. Well, and I probably should have brought this up a long time ago, but linear world design versus open world design is more a spectrum than anything.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I think. I think of uh, Link's Awakening as having a linear, not just a linear story but having a linear progression in the way areas open up in the game Mm -hmm. like in terms of exploring those areas after that it's open but in terms of the way getting to certain locations is
0: that's kind of a thing that that a lot of 2D Zeldas kind of do that it's like okay now you have this item now you can go to that area by you know oh you got the power bracelet you can lift the rock out of the way and go to that area you have the hookshot now you can go over that river stuff like that is a really big trope in Zelda world design, Uh, Link's Awakening, I think I did it a little better than most games. Um, Just because, like, it would open up usually a couple of different areas, and then you would still kind of have to trek back to these areas at some point uh, when you got the next item or stuff. So you, you still, it didn't, like, just open up, like, like one of the i I think a bad example of this is in minish cap where literally it was like you go into this box on hyrule field and there's a rock at this end and then once you get the power bracelet you lift that rock and you go to the next box and then when you're in that box there's a fancy rock and you have to charge through it with the pegasus boots and so once you get the Pegasus <laughs> boots, you can go through that. And then you get to another box, and it, and you use the gust jar or some bullshit. It's like every single time, you, you're you like, Okay, now I see the area where I can't go, and I don't know what item will get me there, but I know that as soon as I beat the dungeon, I'll come back to right that spot. So, <laughs> it, it... Link's Awakening, I see what you're saying, but I it felt more open and you had more reason to re-explore areas than in in some Zelda games. Beer. Now I'm
3: starting to wonder how you even define a linear game. Uh, Like, I'm looking at my list here, and the only one I would consider linear is Undertale.
1: (laughs) What about, uh, what about Binding of Isaac? Or Enter the Gungeon? True, they have non-linear levels.
3: I wouldn't call those linear. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. You don't really have the chance to go back.
3: Well, and the gameplay.
1: all finite. takes
3: place in nonlinear game. stages, even if the arc of the story
1: is linear. Okay. Uh. Half Life? Maybe? Never played it. Uh. Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy.
0: Never played it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, I you did Super never play Mario that. Brothers.
3: Oh yeah, those are linear. That is things. a
0: linear game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some of the games well, like Super Mario sixty four obviously has some amount of exploration in between the levels. Uh, Mario Odyssey has is basically a lot of small open world areas that you travel between. Uh, so it's it's not every Mario game, but a lot of them are are pretty linear.
3: All uh, well, the side un- scrollers.
1: Unrailed.
3: <laughs> that is a linear game but uh, yeah i think linear games uh benefit from just having challenges you have to overcome in sequential order and that's pretty much all they're built around
2: mm-hmm.
3: whereas and, you know open games are more like exploring to find things that help you achieve your goals
1: and well there's plenty of examples of games that have um a little, some amount of exploration in them, there's not... It, it seems much more difficult to find games that are truly linear. There, there, there are plenty of games that are truly linear, but they seem much rarer. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe side scro- a lot of side-scrolling beat them upside count as linear, like uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, the movie, the game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> or, you know, uh, Castle Crashers. River City Girls.
0: I think of linear a different way than you guys, I think, because when I think of a linear game, I think of Skyward Sword or Majora's Mask, where, sure, there's some explorable bits, but largely you're going from point A to B to C to D. Um, And, you know, like in Majora's Mask, you can go and determine a field, but then... You can explore the whole thing, and there's literally like two secrets in it that you can get maybe at the start of the game, and then that's it. And you oh, have to go to the spot. well, not that you can get right away. You know, as you go through the game and get more items, yeah. more masks, then you can get more secrets. And and maybe that's not including as many of the secret masks as I'm thinking of. But anyway, it, you get my point, right? There's not a ton you can do. Uh, and then you and no, have to go to the I swamp, actually, and then you go to the swamp, and the swamp is a relatively linear area, even though there's some exploration in it, and then you go to the dungeon, which is a dungeon, has some exploration sounds in like
3: it. Sounds like Link's Awakening. Yeah.
0: yeah, this is... Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I also I, think... I feel a fair Maj- amount of Zelda games kind of fit under this umbrella, Majora's but Mask some are more open than others, especially Majora's- obviously Breath of the Wild.
1: Majora's Mask has much more going on in the side quest department. Mm-hmm. In terms of, there's a lot more optional content you can do. Yeah, that has a lot in depth that you can just you're just free to totally ignore, not explore mm-hmm. that that you can miss if you're at the wrong point in the cycle. So, and I feel like that's a lot of the draw of the game. So I think, yeah, it has the Link's Awakening thing going on with it, but it also has quite a bit more in the way of side quests. Yeah. Which I feel like is a large part of the draw of the game.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's probably true. Um, Another linear game that I was thinking of that I brought up earlier was The Last of Us. Uh, And The Last of Us 2 are both pretty linear. The first one is, like, really, really linear, like... Most of the game is pretty much on a set path, and you have to figure out what to do and overcome the combat or stealth challenges, depending on which way you like to play the game more, or, you know, some combination of both is what I usually do. Like, I'd usually, like, stealth kill as many guys as I could until I got caught, and then I'd shoot off the rest of them. (laughs) But... um, (laughs) Last of Us 2 kind of takes the same idea, but then makes the areas kind of bigger, and doesn't make one set path from the start to the end like the first one did. So there's a lot more like, oh, I can go into this building. There's a... And then you find lots of different kinds of stuff. Like, oh, here's an old bar. I might find this kind of supply here. Here's an old music shop. I might find this kind of supply there. And then you find, like I was saying earlier, there's like extra cutscenes you can find and stuff if you're in the right place at the right part of the game and stuff like that so both of those are linear experiences and what I think they benefit from most has nothing to do with gameplay and is all about the story because it it really is the first one particularly is almost just like watching a movie right and you're like just doing the middle bits it's like okay, you're getting from point A to point B, and then you're watching basically what happens in the with the characters, and sometimes along the way, because there's a lot of dialogue along the way in in both games, where just like you'll you'll your characters will have banter, or they'll like uh, the characters that you're like trying to sneak around will be talking to each other. Uh, the second game is actually kind of cool about that, because, like, every random guy you find has a name, and, like, if you kill a guy and some, like, the, the other enemies come over his body, they'll be like, oh, gosh, Ethan's dead, or whatever his name is. So it's it's kind of cool like that.
1: Ser- S- Sergio, he's dead.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things that it's like, okay, we're actually kind of fighting, you know, of semi real war the people on the other side you know they they know each other they're probably bros like the rest of us you know something along those lines so uh what do you think about the impact of a story in a linear versus um open world design
3: immersive storytelling
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's easier to tell a traditional story uh, in a more linear linear game.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, when you think of storytelling in an open world game, you you gotta rely on a lot of that environmental storytelling, as Nick was. Uh,
3: Andy okay. and storytelling.
1: The direction of uh. Accurate. like breath of the wild's memories and being able to slowly piece together knowledge of your previous self yeah man breath of the, i'm glad breath of the wild exists it makes this conversation very easy to flow with
0: right yeah because uh, it's funny how like i feel like the one thing that was really negatively received about breath of the wild is its story And it's one of the things that I love the most about Breath of the Wild. Because not that the story is so, so great. It's an okay story. But the way that it is presented, I feel like, lends itself much better to an open-world game than a traditional story. Because, again, we'll go back to Skyrim. The story is you start at point A, you go to point B, C, D, E, until you kill the fucking dragon. Whoop-de-fuck. Right? It's effectively the same presentation of every story that has ever been told. You know, you start at one place and you go to another. But Breath of the Wild has pieces of the story that you can find in different orders. Pieces of the story that you might even skip over, right, the first time. Or, or some people don't even give a shit about the memories and stuff. Just go for the dungeons. Call it good, right? So... I feel like Breath of the Wild has this perfect blend of non-linear story presentation. Uh, And maybe it could add a little more detail, do a few things a little differently. Maybe it would even be better. But I think it really went the extra mile to making an open-world experience that was better it it's it's i feel like it felt more like an open world experience than skyrim because the story was presented as part of the open world experience it wasn't just tacked on because they have to have a story it was integrated into a core aspect of the gameplay
3: i think a big part of that is just because the entire world of breath of the wild is the dungeon it was built as a dungeon
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know you have your rooms with shopkeepers which are your towns you have your rooms with monsters but no. like it's the world dungeon <laughs> <laughs> interesting way to and look that up. is also why it feels like it's so open world is because you know you can just go anywhere in this world dungeon there's no walls but there is limitations and yada yada yad and then you can piece the story together as you explore it so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. whereas Skyrim is definitely lines connecting points with fun little bits spread in between, so it's like almost like a mesh layered on top of a world dungeon Right. whereas Breath of the Wild is just pure world dungeon
0: yeah but I feel like the way that game developers can get out of this stagnation that has become storytelling in open world games is to follow something like Breath of the Wild's example and to really integrate the story with gameplay rather than just have it be almost a separate thing from gameplay
3: or make more story generators
0: <laughs> like Tor Fortress
3: and
1: RimWorld yeah, uh, uh, yeah it, yes also that
0: alright is there anything else we want to say on
3: the, the hub yeah
0: Open world versus linear world. Design. I think I've run out of things to say. I guess we could I have one touch thing that's on hubs like hubs as well because we we didn't talk about them as much. But go ahead, Nick.
3: It's kind of uh, esoteric, but it's, it's kind of like how you define the hub. And this is a conversation got into with our friend Matt. But basically, you want to base your game video or not at a place that is safe that is normal or at least as safe or normal as that world entails giving them essentially a place to breathe before they head out into the weird
1: having a relative safe zone is a
3: good thing you can have different hubs but when you have a hub set up like that, it, it kind of provides pacing. You, know, you don't cool. want to be high tension all the time.
1: That's or even the, why old school survival mm-hmm. games had like safe rooms. Right.
3: So it's old the weird versus the normal.
1: Survival horror games had like safe rooms.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Even in storytelling, you don't want your hub to be as interesting as all the other places. Like,
1: have, have you? I'm like, have you ever read a story where? things happened and then they just kept on happening and it never let up not even for a chapter and you just kind of got exhausted. Exactly. Yeah.
3: So Hyrule Field is that hub. It's the normal. There's nothing too weird there besides the fucking helicopters of death. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Yay, P-Hats! It's a big, normal field. It's not too threatening. That's what makes it a effective hub. Yeah. It's normal. The weird stuff's in the dungeons and the nooks and crannies of mm. the world.
0: I think one of the uh, most effective things about that in Ocarina of Time as well was that it didn't feel like it was linear, even though it, like it was linear. But it didn't feel <laughs> like it was, because once you were in Hyrule Field, you could Quantum go Ogre. like to several places. You could go to Kakariko Village and talk to people and do some side quests. You could go to the ranch and do some side quests. You could go, you know, part of the way to uh, Zora's Domain or part of the way through the desert. Uh, so, and obviously those areas open up later. But it felt like, at the time, it was literally the most open world a game had yes, been 97. in 3D. Uh yeah. So I think and and they had a lot of really cool design choices as well cuz there was a quote unquote correct path but you could go off of it like in a lot of different ways especially once you got to the adult era it's like you can do multiple dungeons out of order. There's a lot of orders that you could do the dungeons in. Uh I I often just go to the fire temple before I go to the forest temple anymore when I replay that game, just because I can, because I'm like, yeah, it's fun. I like the fire temple, (laughs) you know, um, and stuff like that. So, um, I think that was real clever about the way that they did that there. Uh, but yeah, what you're saying, I think is kind of right. Another big world or hub world though, that people talk up a lot is God of War, the new one on PS4. I don't know if you, either of you have played that. No. Yeah. Um, But I thought that one wasn't quite as effective because it's a different kind of hub world where like when you're in the hub world it's called the Lake of the Nine basically and you're, you sail around in a boat and you can go to different islands on the lake. There's a middle area where there's a blacksmith guy that can upgrade your equipment. And basically, the only thing to do in there is go to the blacksmith and upgrade your equipment and go to the next thing. And... it's uh, A and, hub
3: with no window dressing.
0: Yeah, except there was <laughs> like some side quest areas that you could kind of explore, but they never felt like you needed to explore them. They, there was never any particular draw, and that was the only place in which side quests really were. And the main story was so much more interesting than any of the side quests, because all the side quests that I did, at least, were like, you know, maybe some interesting tidbit of lore, but mostly it's just like, hey, go do this thing and I'll give you a health medallion. I'm like, I don't care. So I'm, I'm just gonna leave, and, and I'm gonna go to the main quest, and I'm going to find some health medallions along the way. Or or whatever the health upgrades were called. I don't remember. Viking blood or something. Um, so yeah, it's like it had that hub world, but it it didn't feel the same because you weren't like, like in Ocarina of Time's hub world. You're kind of starting in the hub, and then you go out, and then you come back. And then you go out, and then you come back. In uh, God of War, you kind of go out, and then a path loops around, and then it eventually takes you back. And then you go on another path, and it eventually takes you back. So it doesn't feel quite as hubby. It just feels like, oh, I'm back here. Okay.
3: Huh. I wonder what else contributed to your perception of that yeah I don't know because like I mean all paths are a loop after all when you're going back to the hub but I wonder what makes right. you feel like those were loops and the others were just straight back there and back again right in god's tale by.
0: <laughs> yeah. so anyways any other uh,
1: lack of differentiating factors
0: yeah maybe and just mostly you were just like okay i have another boat segment now where i need to go to this side of the lake Woo. (laughs) yeah Uh, i didn't dig the boat part occasionally in the boat you'd get interesting conversations between kratos and atreus but that was about the extent i thought of what the boat was good anyways is there anything else we have on this topic What's Nothing the I hub have. in
3: Breath of the Wild?
0: Breath of the Wild is it is everywhere?
3: Breath everywhere that's up. green with trees. Is that the hub?
0: Yeah, Breath the the love love in Breath of the, of the Wild, yeah. That's why it's a real open world. You know, I feel like to be a true open world, you don't really have a hub. Hub worlds can be open, you know, and to an extent non linear, but they're they're not open worlds, if that makes sense. I'm not sure I'm explaining that well. But what if it has multi, multi-hubs? multi
1: At that point, we're getting into... Polygamy. At that point, we're getting into a concept where the idea of a hub world doesn't really make sense to apply. It's... it's oh, if there's, like, lots of landmarks that you can treat as hubs, it's still... Mostly an open, but there's not really anything that they lead directly into. It doesn't, it do, it's not really the same thing design wise.
0: So, what we're right, discovering is like that. You can kind of say that for most open world games, I feel like. Like for Skyrim, you obviously have, like, your, um, the Mage College and, um, the, uh, other Norse guy town and the Throat of the World. And those are, like, you could call those like mini hubs, so to speak, where but you know, you're going as much a side questing connected. out of there and coming back. But yeah, they're, they're as
1: much a part of the connective they're tissue. They're more connected as... as a
0: world. So I'm not sure I've yeah. ever seen a game exactly like what you're describing there. There's probably one out there. Yeah. Maybe if I thought a while, I could think of one. I don't know.
3: If I look well, at Breath of the Wild, Hate to Know is the hub.
1: The closest, mm-hmm. thing, the closest thing I can think of is the two towns in Shovel Knight. Because you got the one town at on the beginning and then you got the one town later in the game. Mm.
3: Dems hubs. There's also Rogue Legacy where the hub is literally just a row of like merchants before the castle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's that for your hub? <laughs> or that's part of the hub world. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Alright, all anyways, right. I think we're winding down here about now, so thanks for joining us. So what us we're discovering is these
3: many... concepts are all bullshit. Yeah.
0: There's no such mm. thing
3: as a linear game. There's no such thing as an open world game. There's no such thing no. as a no, that's pure not... hub game. No. If we, like, get into the no, not...
1: details. <laughs> we're, what we're saying at all.
3: That's not what it's... you're saying. It's what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, but Okay, so the Super Mario 64 hub world is qualitatively different than Breath of the Wild's entire open world.
3: Yeah, because you don't need the hub besides to pass through.
1: It's because it's not, a hub, it's not a hub world, it's just a world. It's not a place you travel through to get to adventure, it's a place where the adventure is happening.
0: Thank you for joining
1: us.
3: So, to the past. what constitutes a, a hub? <laughs> This is my what does it mean to be a
1: Chris hub? I, who joined us, Sha- Nick. Hi, I'm uh, Chris Sean is signing us out as we're in the middle of an argue and all that.
0: That's okay. Uh, we, we can continue that because we always have the end segment where we just talk about random bullshit until somebody says something like really awkward. So, so
1: continue. I, uh, I've written some stuff you can find on DriveThruRPG. Nick's written some stuff he can find on DriveThruRPG. There, I've technically chilled this thing, and uh, uh, that stuff may or may not be coming to other online stores at a certain time.
3: If you email me, I'll give you stuff for free.
0: Email Nick or or go to drive through RPG and give him money. Hashtag shameless plug. And you can still find me on 2 com and on Twitter at spam. I do stuff. Wow. Yeah. And this is Nick. Hi. Also, Nick, you appeared on the podcast, which means you have to drink. Have,
3: I did drink. You have a drink? Then I went to a grocery store.
0: What kind of alcohol are you imbibing on our podcast tonight?
3: Oh, it was a Coors Banquet. Wow, I'm sorry. I only drank it because I was really stressed out.
0: Nice. I'm sorry. Also, we all forgot to rate our drinks, so this uh, 10-cup rye, I'm going to give 12. It's decent rye. Not bad. Um, My summer pills... Um, I was going to give it like a 14, but I think I'll give it a 12 because it was a little too warm. So put it in the fridge next time. Chris, what do you give your beer?
1: Uh, Peach Stand Rambler, I'd give it probably a 13. It was pretty tasty. It was was all right. It's not my... I don't think I'd like to drink it all the time, but Mm. good for a hot summer night.
0: And Nick, what do you rate that beer on a scale of 3 to 17? Oh,
3: 17. I thought it was 14. I was going to give it an 8. It was a beer. It was a good beer. <laughs> That's all there is to say about it.
0: Alright. So, 10 is average. Call it 11, because it's good.
3: It wasn't a big drink, so I'm not going to give it anything higher than, like, 10.
0: Alright. <laughs> Alright. And now the part of the podcast we were talking about earlier, where we just talk about random bullshit until somebody says something really awkward. So, uh...
1: So so, we use concept, we use terms like open world and hub world because they're useful, not because there is some philosophical platonic ideal. Yes. Yeah.
3: Like you said, the open world V linear is a spectrum.
0: <laughs>
3: yes. Now I'm thinking like hub V question mark is also a spectrum.
1: So, a hub city is a different thing than like a hub world if we're get like the hub in a d and d the hub city and a d and d game where you go into it, do stuff, and then go out of it is different because it doesn't directly connect you to the outside world it just serves it just serves a different purpose. It's not like the hub world in I don't know Crash Bandicoot or Glover or what. Man, I'm re- referencing Man, all those the are 90s platformers.
3: World like Mario 64. Yeah, where but they're... then you have like uh, Dark Souls, where like all of your bonfires are practically hubs. Some of them have like blacksmiths and that makes them like special hubs. But those aren't exactly hub cities. They're not hub worlds. They're hub fire pits.
1: They're... And they're they're not even really hubs. They're more like little pit stops.
3: Yeah, most of them, but some of them are hubs, it's, uh, especially Firelink Shrine.
1: So it's when you talk about like the hubs in like a '90s platformer, they're mostly a way to transition from to. They're mostly like a more complicated level select mechanism, uh, sometimes with its own secrets or own areas to explore, but generally as like the central location for. for transitioning from point A to point B. And that's not the case with, like, uh, Bonfire and Dark Souls until late in the game. That's not the case for, like, a hub. I mean, League
3: Shrine is pretty much a hub. Like, I feel if you're designing a game, you could, like, circle something and be like, all right, this is the hub in the context of that game. For instance, what? I'd say like Halo doesn't have a hub.
0: <laughs> you all know,
1: but Halo is also linear.
0: It's a good example that we completely forgot about. Yeah, Halo.
1: Halo is uh, man's. Uh, don't afraid of anything. I don't know.
0: <laughs> don't you afraid of you? It's you afraid guy.
1: It's like a bonfire is can is a different thing. It's it's a different kind of thing than those hub worlds I was talking about earlier. It might be it might serve some of the same roles as like a hub city in D and D, and that it's like a place to recharge, level up, do all that. But it
3: I mean, doesn't. A uh, d and D hub city is also a hub world. It's also the place where you level select your next destination.
1: Except for you can directly transition from one place on... In D&D, you can directly go from one place to another place without ever going back to the city.
3: Yeah, it's not required.
1: You can camp in the middle of the woods if you want. You can... It doesn't directly portal you to your destination.
3: Well... Sure, but I mean okay let us look at Kenshi a <laughs> game no one's heard about besides us okay, yeah, um, so give literally you a place about? called the hub oh good okay the Part hub the it it the hub is not a connecting tissue in Kenshi. I think what you're describing is just a multi world bridge essentially it's like i think a hub hub is like a base of operations or a a safe space. Unless the place you have to go to to access more content,
1: to Google, <laughs> there, there's not going to be. No, there's not. I'm trying. A solid definition of this because it doesn't refer to a solid concept. Nope. But it, But there's a way we can make it refer to. It's it's kind of like how the word rogue-like mutated over the years.
3: And how and bread man. is soup.
0: We're really bad at saying awkward stuff. And how
1: bread is soup. Yep. You're 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 gonna you're gonna have to elaborate. <laughs> um you, you got a point there probably, but you're gonna have to elaborate. I haven't heard this one before. Uh,
3: bread is soup is the like main point I took away from watching a uh, Breath of the Wild speedrunning video.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. I forgot about that.
3: I forget how it goes, it's like if you can cook it in a pot, then it is a form of soup. And since bread requires water to cook, and you can cook it in a pot technically, it is classified as soup because the definition of pot and br- and soup are extremely vague. So bread technically qualifies
1: as soup. Oh my god, this is the sandwich alignment chart all over again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so are we going to get into the okay. whole thing where hot dogs are sandwiches again? Yeah,
1: okay. And they're
3: not, they're so, connected on side. Alright.
0: This oh, is shit. this is
1: an alignment spectrum.
3: Oh no subs.
1: So let let's go here. <laughs> let me let me ask where you fall on this. Cause I would say that an ice cream ta- uh, taco uh, an ice cream, okay. An ice cream sandwich is a form of taco, right? It's just like the bottom halves are separated.
3: Yeah.
0: Can the bottom halves be separated in a taco? Uh, yeah. I don't see why not. In what other case is that considered a taco?
1: Uh, like so, if I get ta- hard shell tacos, right, and like the bottom gets soaked with something, and then like the it comes apart, still a taco, right? it's just the bottom separated. I just got hard shell stuff on the side.
0: Right. But that, that's a broken taco.
1: Yeah. So a sandwich is just a broken taco. I, th- I think is my point.
0: But,
3: but the sub on the left,
2: it's connected
3: on one side. But a soft on
0: taco side. will never break on you. Yeah, it's a soft taco. A soft taco will never Wait break on minute. you. Wait a minute. I know what the difference is
3: between tacos and sandwiches. It's how the ingredients are inserted. A taco is meant with the ingredients to be facing upwards, whereas a sandwich has the ingredients facing sideways. <laughs> it's all about the direction that the ingredients face. So a hot
1: dog is a taco then?
3: Yes, a hot dog would be closer to a taco than a sandwich. It is, and that makes perfect sense in my brain.
1: Yeah, uh, you know what? I'm convinced.
0: All right. So what th- about a pop tart?
3: Th- uh, a pop tart. Pop tart is, is a, a pie. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, but if you if you look at the alignment chart here,
3: well, the alignment chart says it's not following the ingredient or the structures. Like, in what way is a pop tart a sandwich?
1: So it's got it's got ingredients in the center, right, and it's surrounded by like a bready material
3: with ingredients on the exterior.
1: Yeah, some sandwiches got that. I mean, there's like bread that has like cheese melted on top of it. Why not? But bread it's with still
3: part it? of the bread structure.
1: Okay, a jelly donut is a sandwich. No,
0: no a jelly it's a pastry. Donut is a pie. You're both right. All pastries are pies.
3: Wait, so pizzas are pastry? I mean, yeah, pizzas are pastries, technically.
0: And pies. They're just open-faced. Actually, wait, wait, wait. a pizza is, is this... just an open-faced taco.
1: Yes, this is correct. Because the The ingredients ingredients are inserted on the top.
0: Because you could take a pizza, and you could fold it up, and then it would have the bread in the perfect shape. It would be a taco.
3: That is actually accurate, yep. But it's not a sandwich. No. (laughs) And a Pop-Tart is not a goddamn sandwich.
0: No, a Pop-Tart is a pie. Which, if you can fold a pie in half and turn it into a taco... That means you could fold a Pop-Tart in half and turn it into a taco. A pastry
1: is a dough sure. of flour, water, and shortening that may be savory or sweetened. I got some pizza on so, the
0: uh, counter, and So, I is pizza shortened? I don't know. I assume
1: so. Yeah, so pizza might technically be a pastry. So, is a Pop-Tart a type of calzone?
3: A... I- yeah, I think a Pop-Tart would be closer to a calzone than a sandwich.
0: That is a a type of taco, because it's just a taco with the top No, because it's enclosed.
3: Together. Tacos are by definition is not enclosed.
0: They, are they indeed?
3: Tacos this are either ta- open-faced or folded. Is that according to, to Merriam-Webster
0: or Dictionary.com?
3: Synthesize it.
0: <laughs> so, so what if I take my calzone and cut a slit along the spine is it then a taco
3: it's a calzone that just has a slit in it just like a broken taco is still a taco so
0: if, if you know I i've a looked up the official and, definition and i pinched the the, the 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 top closed is it still a taco or is now it a calzone
3: well if you crimp the top closed it's a fucking ravioli
1: <laughs> okay okay you know those PB and J uh, like things that were like sealed completely? Uh, they're like uncrustables. So is that? That's yeah, the uncrustables. Uh, uh, yeah. Are those sandwiches or are those raviolis?
3: Well, then, I mean, okay, ravioli was me being facetious, but they're definitely not sandwiches. Ravi
1: sandwich. Okay. <laughs> are they calzones? What is? Of
0: course, because a calzone what, is, is based in bread, right? Yeah. Are they
1: jelly donuts? They're whatever no, jelly they're, donut they're,
0: is. Donuts are made out of fried stuff. Yeah, okay, not, you know not, what? Not that's, bread. that's weird. Calzones right. have bread. Jelly donuts have so, fried stuff.
1: Where do I go to get a taco donut?
0: My house. Bring the donuts. I'll make it happen.
3: Sure. <laughs> I kind of want to take you up on this.
1: Oh, this is now reminding me of the time I tried to make churros, but they were just like little chodes. <laughs> frying up in the. they didn't taste like churros at all. Because it was
0: just sugar.
3: Not cinnamon sugar. To see this lightsaber that I am
0: waving around on the video like an income poop was advertised as a desk lamp. And it does not do its job as a desk lamp very well. But it's a neat little lightsaber.
1: Maybe the point of this conversation is that definitions are there to be useful, not to be accurate.
3: Yeah, and that's pretty much what I said at the start of this tangent.
0: Thank you for coming to Uh, the only gaming podcast where we end our podcast by talking semantics over terminology instead of video games.